Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow, and this week I'm excited to share with you a sneak preview of my new audiobook. It's called The State of Us. And in this book, I share a few of the things I've learned about politics, humanity, and the world. But perhaps above all, I say some of the things I could never have said on the news. As well as reflecting on my own career, I consider the effect of inequality on society, our unwillingness to confront it, and the vital work of journalism in the social media age. The State of Us is brought to you by Penguin Audio, and you can download the full audiobook from all trusted retailers. In the meantime, please enjoy the preview. Chapter 1. Wake-up call. When I arrived at the Channel 4 News studios, I heard that there'd been a fire in a building in the borough of Kensington to Chelsea the night before. At first, I don't think anyone had a sense of the enormity of what was going on. Some colleagues brushed it off. Well, that's a London story. Leave it to ITV. But very quickly, the information we were receiving started to sound very serious indeed we began to get a sense that this was not just a little fire, one that would pass by without much incident. An awful lot of people were going to be affected by what was, we realized, an inferno. As pictures, tweets, messages and calls started to filter their way to the newsroom, we became aware that the fire had occurred in a tower block. It was an extremely tall building, and potentially hundreds of people were trapped inside. With horror, I saw that all the ingredients for an absolute disaster were in place. I leapt on my bike, by far the quickest way to travel across town, and cycled over. The smoke cloud was a grievous horror, billowing up into the sky. It was visible from almost anywhere in London. I certainly didn't need a map to find Grenfell. I just headed towards the black column, snaking up into the sky, 
that rose in front of me as I left the back end of Paddington Station. Rounding the corner by the canals, I was struck by a feeling of two parallel existences. It was a glorious sunny morning. People were in the parks, sat at tables in front of cafes, ties loosened, shirt sleeves rolled up. The carefree lives I was passing seemed a perverse foreshadowing of what I would find, just minutes away in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea. I was naive enough to imagine that the Grenfell Tower would transpire to be a luxury high-rise, housing rich tenants. Not a bit of it. This was one of several council blocks housing families of working people. It's an easy mistake to make. When we say Kensington and Chelsea, we tend to conjure images of wealth and glitz. We overlook the fact that the borough is not just home to the upper middle classes, but has its share of working class people who provide support for the whole community. And yet, in that moment, it was they who were crying out for support and rescue, neither of which, I might add, was very evident. Despite my assumption about Grenfell Tower, I was not completely in the dark about the makeup of the borough more generally. As I cycled towards the column of smoke rising into the sky, my thoughts turned to an event which I had attended just a few weeks previously. On the 20th of April 2017, just 50 days before the fire, I'd been invited to judge alongside Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft, a debating competition in London. It was the final of a countrywide championship organized by the charity DebateMate. This is an organization that does fantastic work in democratizing that skill so often associated with the elite, public speaking. I attended as a judge of the best floor speech. There was little difficulty in deciding the winner. It was Ferdos Hashim, a remarkably poised 12-year-old from West London. She was supremely confident and used language beautifully. Bill Gates grasped her hand when he gave her the award. Like me, like everybody who witnessed her performance, he was absolutely blown away by the quality of her writing and her remarkable ability to present it with assurance and composure. Through her eloquence, Fedoz demanded to be seen. She attended Kensington Aldridge Academy, whose buildings stood in the shadow of Grenfell. Fedoz seemed to represent that class that had too long been forgotten in Kensington and Chelsea. She did not come from a rich background. Her parents weren't bankers or columnists or executives. Rather, her father had that most iconic job of the working Londoner. He was a black cab driver. Pulling up on my bicycle, Grenfell Tower was very scarred and very red. It was burnt. It was still burning. The fire wasn't over by any means. The building continued to smolder. There was something nightmarish and unnatural about its progress. One expects a fire to climb up a building, but this one was going down. The floors were catching one after the other, and the fire chased down from the top towards the ground. By the time I arrived, the emergency services, and most particularly the fire brigade, were there in full force. They were accompanied by a helicopter which hovered and sprayed water from above. Attempts at rescue were underway. It was clear to me that the fire brigade were doing the best they possibly could, working desperately to try to enter the building and pull the victims out. But it was also clear that very few people could escape the floors affected. 
particularly those towards the top of Grenfell's 24 stories. With horror, I realized that I was watching a tragedy unfold in real time, a terrifying scene of death and despair. More than that, the inequality of the area stood out as starkly as the smoking building did against the summer sky. Quite literally, one street away from Grenfell Tower, there are picture-perfect Victorian crescents, the houses painted in pastel tones, so desirable that holidaymakers from around the world would stand in front of them and take selfies. There are restaurants selling the finest cuisine, where a single small plate costs more than a family in the Grenfell Tower had to spend on their weekly groceries. Here we were in the richest borough in Britain, and somehow matters had coalesced to produce the most appalling suffering amongst the poorest inhabitants. How, I wanted to know, could this possibly have happened? We devoted the rest of the day to finding out. Who could we talk to live on the programme to give us a sense of the significance of what had happened? We interviewed many people, and the consistency of what they told us began a profound change in my outlook. As we sought to make sense of the emergency during those hours before we were transmitted at seven o'clock in the evening, it became very clear to me that this was an archetypal story of inequality. Over and over again we heard the same thing. People were ignored because they were poor, and poor because they were ignored. As Eddie Defarn, a social worker who lived at Grenfell and whose blogging had warned of a potential fire catastrophe, put it, The reality is, if you're on a housing estate, it is indifference and neglect. Two words that sum up everything about the way we were treated. They weren't interested in providing housing services, keeping us safe, maintaining the estate. They were just interested in themselves. The they here referred to Kensington Chelsea Council, but could just as easily have meant news organisations, politicians and financial institutions. As I said, my knee-jerk thought when I heard that the tower was on fire in Kensington was a block of luxury flats. In truth, it is completely inconceivable that such a disaster would have been allowed to happen to a rich block. If the inhabitants are wealthy, they're very much better provisioned. The owners who tend to be private companies rather than local authorities know the scale of their duty to ensure that nothing ever goes wrong. I cannot think of an instance in which well-off people have been burnt to death in a residential tower block. If Grenfell had been occupied by bankers and people from the upper echelons of society, you sense that there would have been fire alarms, self-sealing doors and sprinklers. But it was ordinary people who lived in Grenfell, and many of them had come to this country from abroad. For them, there was no escape mechanism. Nobody with the power to do anything seemed to have dreamt of what would happen if the tower caught fire. That basic preparation hadn't happened. There were some very fundamental elements missing. Space in front of the building for emergency vehicles was compromised. Fire exits had been blocked. Tenants had not been briefed on what to do in case of emergency. As I talked to people in the immediate aftermath and interviewed some for the news, I was startled to find that there were several who thought it not surprising. Of course, there was a lot of distress because people had friends, neighbours and relatives in the tower, but the fire itself and the difficulties associated with rescuing people seemed to be of a piece with their wider experiences of life. 
My growing feeling was that nobody in authority had ever thought about the needs of the kind of people who lived in Grenfell Tower. As a very crude and straightforward example, a number of people who lived there were migrants who weren't as aware as native-born Britons about which parts of the council you needed to talk to to get things done. The infrastructure that existed to support them wasn't always accessible to them. Then, on a purely linguistic level, they may not have been able to understand the very specific language of a document about evacuation or safety. We know that tenants had not been given proper fire safety instructions by the company who managed the building. There were no directions posted in communal sections telling residents what to do in the event of fire. There had been a recent newsletter which explained that residents should remain in their flats, advice that proved to be disastrous when followed. But even if that advice had been accurate, a resident's newsletter is not many people's first port of call for safety instructions. Likewise, if they did not read English well, there's no guarantee that tenants could have understood the information even if they wanted to and knew where to look. It should go without saying that information needs to be highly accessible, available in multiple languages, and comprehensible to a child. Otherwise, it's useless. But nobody who drafted those documents ever thought of that, and nobody who worked in the local political infrastructure seemed to have made an effort to change the system to meet the needs of the people it was supposed to serve. Of course, there are Acts of Parliament which dictate that a building like this must have certain kinds of resources. But that turned out to be worthless in the event. Lip service had been paid to safety, exemplifying the old axiom regarding the letter of the law rather than its spirit. Ultimately, the inhabitants didn't have a channel by which to tell the authorities their fears. There was no official record of people expressing anxiety about the danger of the building. The result, as we on the ground were reporting, was complete chaos. Nobody knew what to advise. Nobody had ever faced a similar situation. Nobody even knew the dangers posed by the building itself by the fact that the cladding was flammable. As the journalistic work wore on, the difficulties I faced ceased to be a question of filing a news report. I was now trying hard not to become completely overwhelmed by the experience. At moments, whilst I was walking around the estate trying to talk to people and extract information, I was close to tears. I've been to disasters before, I've reported from war zones, but nothing, nothing jarred like this. The collision between wealth and poverty defined the whole event. It was an extremely emotional experience. I was down at the center of the disaster for the best part of a week. After a couple of days, amongst the rows and rows of homemade posters, I spotted a photograph. In red writing, at the top, missing. On the right, a boy in a yellow helmet is gazed directly at us. On the left, a girl, perhaps 10, 11. She too wears a yellow climbing helmet and hauntingly looks away from the camera to her right, her eyes focusing on something out of shot. Missing since early morning, 14th June, 2017. Unmistakably, it was Fedor's. The girl I had just weeks earlier with Bill Gates at my side, judged as the best young public speaker in the country, was, unbeknownst to me, a resident of Grenfell Tower. This brilliant girl 
lived with her family on the twenty-second floor. I knew precisely what the poster meant. I knew precisely what had happened. And at that moment, I burst into tears. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The state of us. Many countries around the world are experiencing an existential upheaval. It's rare in history for so many nations in the developed world to suffer such a crisis at one and the same time. The belief that parliamentary structures are no longer fit for purpose, the doubts centred upon whether the democratic system is any longer capable of serving their needs, and above all, the disintegration of trust in political leadership. Key amongst these issues is inequality. For all the progress humankind has made, for all the inventions, for all the discoveries and new technologies, Western societies are severely undermined by social inequality. Here in the UK, the richest 1% of households earn around 150 times more than the poorest. Likewise, that top 1% also own 13% of our nation's wealth, meaning that inequality in wealth is greater than the already very great inequality of income. The richest 5% of people in the UK own 950 times as much as the poorest 5%. Is inequality inherently bad? Is it not to be expected that some people achieve at a higher level than others? Perhaps we shouldn't overburden ourselves with concern, just so long as that 1% are quite simply the best of us. Perhaps, but they aren't. According to researchers at the London School of Economics, social mobility, the ability of people to move up the social ladder, is getting harder. A child born in 1970 has much less chance of ending up as a top earner than a child born in 1958. For those born in the 1980s and 1990s, things are worse. In fact, on all these measures, as time goes by, inequality seems to be increasing, both in terms of outcome and in terms of opportunity. For most of the 20th century, inequality was flat or falling in the UK. Where have we gone wrong? Grenfell remains an alarming wake-up call. In one drastic failure in one tower block, we see the essence of inequality horrifically exemplified. From the elevated Westway motorway route into London, to this day Grenfell stands shrouded in canvas to prevent us from seeing the fire-blackened facade 
and burnt-out concrete. The numbers and figures that I mentioned earlier are shocking, but I fear they do little to jolt us from our stupor. Surely as we stare out from our cars south to Grenfell Tower before turning eastward to the City of London and the towers of the Shard and Gherkin and 22 Bishopsgate, we must realise that something is wrong. Inequality is not undesirable simply because of its adverse impact on productivity and economic growth, and not even because of the political chaos that ensues from living in an unjust society. Inequality strikes us in our hearts, too. It's wrong. It's wrong that no one in the council appeared to worked out whether a child like Fedor's, or even an adult like her father, would be able to safely escape from their home if it caught fire. It's wrong that some of us don't even have enough money to eat, whilst others fly Wagyu beef halfway across the planet for a couple of amusing mouthfuls. It is worth remembering that approximately 2.5 million people in the United Kingdom rely on a food bank. It is wrong that there are talented young people up and down the country whose intelligence is wasted in exhausting, poorly paid manual labour when those without qualifications are given plum jobs in the media simply because of where they went to school. And I can include myself in that group, despite a lack of academic achievement. I'm not one of life's scholars. I've worked hard over the course of my career, and I'm proud of my accomplishments. But there are many other people with only six O-levels and a C, a D, and an E at A-level who did not go on to read the news on television. Now, I don't think my career is entirely due to my background, but it is abundantly clear to me that despite my ambition and drive, and despite a few unusual tools in my locker, I was born with an advantage over many others. I realize it's an absurd situation to talk about inequality when one is, in fact, a member of the elite. I'm fully aware of it, but nevertheless, I have been a journalist for over 50 years now, and having spent most of my life trying to explain to the nation what is going on, I find myself at the end of my career with an answer to the question and the freedom to be able to state it. Inequality is the story behind so many other stories. It is the key issue at the heart of everything that is going on today. This book, then, is an attempt to explain how I came to this conclusion. What do I mean when I use these words? What is an elite? What is inequality? In Britain, both center on class, which has been historically constructed and has proved a long-lasting element of Britishness. I wouldn't say that the issue of class and social division has altered in any significant way since I was born. There are moments when I thought things were changing, but then I made new discoveries. Largely, class is informed by education, by whether you and your parents were educated at a private school. The public school system hasn't changed at all, as far as I can tell. There are some girls in some of the boys' schools, but I don't think that has fundamentally altered our shared reality. There is still no question that in buying a private education, you are buying a better chance for your child. Otherwise, what would be the point? That being the case, class remains an inescapable fact of life in Britain. Having said that, and to head off certain expected criticisms, I am not a communist. I am not looking for blind equality, or even equality of outcomes in general. Neither am I a pathological anti-private education type. I believe simply in equality of opportunity. It's very difficult to bring about, and 
As I mentioned, we haven't gone an enormous way in doing so over the course of my life, and I've been knocking around for more than 70 years. But we can and we must improve. We have to recognize what the consequences are if we don't. Consequences like Grenfell. If we're serious about ensuring that something like that terrible fire doesn't happen again, we have to start offsetting the differences between the privileged and everyone else. The basic argument of this book is that across society in various fields, there's been a process of elite capture that has disenfranchised the average person. Elite capture is the process by which public resources, which should benefit everybody, fail to do so because economically, politically, and or socially advantaged groups hijack that resource and make it serve their own far narrower interest. This divorces person from person, community from community, individual from society, and society from institutions. To address this, I've split this book into two parts. The first takes us through glaring examples of inequality in Britain and around the world. We shall investigate the old institutions that helped to create an elite in the UK, the public schools, the church, and the hereditary nature of some of our political institutions. We'll look at where we live and see the role played by housing and property wealth in establishing the inequality that divides us and what the lethal consequences can be. We'll investigate how this inequality plays out at the national level, focusing on Brexit, undoubtedly the hardest moment of my reporting career, before finally considering international inequality and its threat to peace. As I write this, Vladimir Putin has taken his armies into war with Ukraine that conveys no apparent benefit to the Russian people at large. It puts me in mind of 2003, when, despite much public opposition, Tony Blair took Britain to war in Iraq. Despite the difference in the two political systems, the result is the same. Is there a more brutal illustration of the elite's power over the common man than the executive sending young soldiers to die in ill-thought-out military campaigns? The second section looks more specifically at the world that I've inhabited for the past 50 years, journalism and the news media. I believe that journalism is potentially one of the best defences against inequality that we have, but it has the ability to drive inequalities too. Here I'll take on a challenge mounted by elites against ordinary people in three ways and show how that has affected the news. In the first, it's how private interest groups can capture the news, online, in print, or broadcast, because they have a vested interest in making the information you see flatter them. In the second, we'll look at governments at home and abroad and their attempts to deaden the conversation so that the average person can't see what's really happening, deflecting criticism where and when it's due. A free press is a hallowed right that we've had to fight for, close to home and far away, and it's under threat. Finally, we'll look at how newsrooms themselves are beset by the inequalities of our society at large. This means that important issues of race, class, and gender get missed. Ultimately, if all journalists are white, upper or middle class, and male like me, they're going to have blind spots and miss stories. 
Gazing up at the smoke still pouring from Grenfell Tower in the early hours, I felt the weight of the journalist's obligation to understand what had happened. The seeds of this book were sown then. When I reflected upon the power contradictions between those who'd suffered and died in the blaze and those who administer the local authority in whose hands this scandalous failure had occurred, I felt both disconnected and frustrated. I was on the wrong side of the terrible divide that exists in present-day society and in which we are all major players. We can accuse the political classes for their failures, and we do, but all of us, myself included, are guilty. This country is becoming stratified and divided. People like me have grown too far removed from those who live their lives in Grenfell and who across the country still live in homes with combustible cladding, no sprinklers, and without centralised fire alarms. Amid the demonstrations around Grenfell after the fire, there were cries of, Where were you, Snow? Why didn't you come here before? It's a very fair question. Why didn't we? Why didn't we have contact? Why didn't we know what was going on? Why didn't we enable the residents of Grenfell Tower, and indeed the other hundreds of tower blocks like it around Britain, to find ways to talk to us and for us to expose their stories? We had missed it. What we thought was going on was not the whole story, and some of it we got wrong. In the recent past, Politicians, journalists, pundits, pollsters and other so-called experts have got it wrong repeatedly. The Brexit referendum. Most in the media predicted the wrong outcome. Trump becoming president in America completely defied expectations of yet more experts and media operatives. Did we predict the rise of neo-fascism in parts of Europe or recognise it for what it was when it dawned? In Britain, Prime Minister Theresa May unnecessarily called a general election in 2017. It was predicted to give her a majority of 60 to 70 seats in Parliament. We got that wrong too. She was forced to do a deal with hardline Ulster nationalists in Northern Ireland to stay in power. And it was this that we were discussing in the days before the fire. May's electoral failure was just a week earlier. And the principal issue of the day was Brexit. Given what we uncovered at Grenfell, a citizenry that felt ignored and inequality running rampant, should we have been so seriously surprised to find that the vast majority of the most challenging places to live in Britain voted to kick the people in power in the teeth? That electoral failure by Theresa May, that Trump triumph, that Brexit shock result, that once improbable Boris Johnson premiership, I believe their cause was uniform. I will set out my contention that widespread distress, kindled by inequality, played a devastating role in delivering unexpected votes that rocked electoral predictions across the Western world, leaving a trail of division in its wake. That was a preview of my new audiobook, The State of Us, which is brought to you by Penguin Audio. If you want to hear more, the full audiobook is out now. It's back to business as usual on Snowcast next week, when I'll be speaking to the award-winning journalist Gary Young. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. And I hope to meet you back here very soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.